All right, well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you today. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Tyson. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Callwood Church, and I'm glad that you are here today. Every Sunday is a great Sunday, but I'm excited today because we are finishing off our series, It's Not As It Seems, on our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, if you, if, I don't know about you, but I have really loved and enjoyed studying this book. And, and one of the things that I've loved most is oftentimes when we think about the book of Revelation, if you're new to scripture or new to church, it can be intimidating to go through it. And week after week, we, come, we came back to this idea that Revelation is not something that we have to fear, but ultimately, Revelation is about what? It's the Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer. Sunday school answers are not always wrong. Jesus is what we're talking about in Revelation. It, we come back to the focus is on Jesus, who he is, that he is alive currently right now, and our discipleship to Jesus. And I've learned so much and have such a greater appreciation for the beauty and wisdom of this book. And as our, our pastoral team and our preaching team, we hope that you have as well over these weeks. And today we get to the last two chapters of Revelation. And early on in Revelation, we learned that it was a letter that was written that was meant to be read aloud in the churches that it was written to. And so today, uh, I wanted to start by just reading these two chapters. Disclaimer, it is a long two chapters. So if your neighbor falls asleep while we're reading it, it's okay. Nudge them. Say, it's good that you're here. I'm glad you're here, but wake up. And so if you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading Revelation 21 and 22, and it'll be on the screens in case you don't have your Bibles. So it says this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And he said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held one of the seven bowls filled with the seven plagues came and spoke to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had massive high wall with 12 gates, Twelve angels were at the gates. Their names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and you guessed it, three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who had spoke had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square, its length and width are the same, the city is measured uh, with a rod at 1,200 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 
Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building of this wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And I made it through. Okay. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Congratulations, you're at halfway. (laughs) Tell someone beside you, you've made it halfway. All right. Revelation 22 continues and says this, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on either side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of its fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and its ser- his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy be still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share from the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. And all of Revelation and all of Scripture ends with these words. 
He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together as we've read God's word. Jesus, I pray that today, as we look at the last two chapters of Scripture, you would help us to see this great and incredible story that we are a part of, that you would open up our minds and our imaginations to understand the future that you have before us, Lord, so that we may live in the present in light of that future. God, open up our eyes and our ears to see and hear what you want us to see and hear today. Take my words and use them to point us to Jesus, to encourage and sharpen us today. And we pray that our time together for the rest of this morning would be beneficial to us, Lord, and would be glorifying to you. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Now, quick shout out. Kyle crushed it on the tech up there. Hey, he was on that scripture. Let's go, Kyle. You're awesome. He's on it just like the whole time. I gave him a real challenge this morning. and He crushed it. As you, as you just saw, there are so many things in these last two chapters of Scripture. We could talk about so many pictures, so many images, so many different aspects of the last two chapters of Revelation, and I'm not going to be able to do justice to all of them in the time we have together today, which is why we read them, to meditate on them, to think about them, to reflect and hear these words and these two chapters so that even if something else stood out to you today, you can walk away with that. And now that you've heard the end of, this, of Scripture, now that you've read along with me, if you were to sum up the whole story of the Bible, how would you sum up the story of Scripture? How would you sum up what has happened in Revelation or even from Genesis all the way through to Revelation? Now, I know that this is a big task because most Bibles have over a thousand pages in it. And I know it's a big ask to summarize a thousand pages down to just one or two ideas. But I want you to think about how you'd answer that question and hold it in your minds for a moment. If you're not familiar with the Christian worldview and the Christian story, we believe that God created the universe and all that is within it. We don't believe that as human beings we are just simply time plus matter plus chance. We actually believe that there was an intention and a mind behind creation. That God created all and created us in his own image as partners to rule and reign all of creation and and specifically earth with him. We were created in, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden walking and talking with God and he created us as partners in this creative project. Here's the authority and the responsibility that God gives to humanity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. It says this, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He made them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. You were made to partner with God in lovingly overseeing creation that he has put before us. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve take that authority and power that was God's and they try and overstep it and they try to become like God, defining right and wrong, doing things on their own terms instead of in partnership with God. And everything goes off the rails in Genesis chapter 3 of our story They start blaming each other. They hide from each other and from God, and it's a mess. And from there, things get worse and worse. 
And in trying to take God's place, Adam and Eve start a downward spiral that all of creation is then sucked into. And from that point in the story, God has a choice. What is God going to do? Is God going to turn his back on these people who have turned their back on him? Will he allow humanity to kind of just go its own way and leave us in the mess that we have created and often still create today? Or is he going to do something about it? And the point from that point on in the story is that there's a promise that God will rescue and redeem and restore all that was lost that day in Genesis chapter 3. God does not want to leave humanity that he created in the mess that we often find ourselves in, but instead wants to recreate what was lost. If we want to simplify the Bible's story, the the grand narrative of Scripture down to three words, Pastor Pete Hughes from the UK puts it this way. There's creation, then there's decreation, and then there's recreation. God has created this world, made us in his own image to rule and reign as partners with him, but instead we turn our backs and we often decreate the good world that God created. I don't think you have to look far to see people around us misusing the power that they've been given. Those, those instances are in the news all around us. We don't have to look too far to see decreation and the things around us that are broken in this world. But God is on a mission to recreate his good and his perfect creation. And this is why I think Revelation 21.5 is the perfect summary statement for these chapters. Revelation 21.5 states God's mission and the great story of Scripture. And it says, Then the one seated on the throne says, Look, I am making all things new. That is God's hope. That is his desire to redeem and restore and to make all things new in this world. I don't know how many of you have had the chance to meet my wife, Lindsay. She is awesome. I love her. Otherwise, I wouldn't be married to her. But one of the things that she is amazing at is that she is the Virage sale and Facebook marketplace queen. I come home sometimes and I'm like, where did you get that? She's like, oh, I was on marketplace for free. And I'm like, okay, cool, let's go. And I always know when my wife's got this, this tone in her voice that, it, that is gonna involve work for me. She, she goes, hey, I, I found this really great deal. Someone's giving this away for free. And I think if we do X, Y, and Z to it, it would look as good as new. And I am a sucker for it. I can't, I can't say no. She has the vision. My job is to just execute the vision to the best of my ability. This is where my skills are lacking, but YouTube is great. And so here's one of the little projects that we've done. We found this, this home for free on Virage Sale. And Lindsay's like, if we paint it this color and if we add this and add some flowers and do all that, it'll look great. And so Bo has this beautiful house that he looks at. I don't know, he sometimes plays with it in our backyard. Now, I say all this to say it's not about my skills or my creativity. It's amazing what a little bit of paint and some water and YouTube can do. But this is a picture of what God wants to do with all of creation. Where, where things are broken, where things are faded, where things are messed up and not where they once were or where they, God wants them to be, God wants to take and redeem and restore and breathe new life back into his creation. It's amazing when we look at this phrase, I'm making all things new. One of the things that gets lost in it is that in the Greek, there are two words for new. Uh, Pastor Pete Hughes, again, is helpful. He says the Greek language has two words for new, neos and kainos. 
Neos is something brand new, like when you purchase a new car that's never been driven before. Kainos is something that is old, made new, like when your car is fixed at a garage and drives like new. When John has a vision that God is making all things new, the word he chooses is kainos. The world that God created, the world he so loves that he would send his only son to die for, isn't banished to the garbage heap so that God could create a new and improved version. Instead, it is recreated or restored. God does not just scrap the earth. Instead, every place you see the word new in, script, in this portion of scripture, it is kainos. He redeems and he restores and renews all that is broken and lost in creation, including us as humanity that was made in his image. He is in the business of restoration and making things new far greater than I could with some playhouse in our backyard. The Christian story, if you're not familiar with it, is so much better than believe the right things and you'll go to the good place instead of the bad place when you die. Our story finishes with God making his home with us and healing and restoring everything that was broken and lost. All throughout scripture, God has promised that he will do this. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see this finally come to a grand conclusion, which is really just a beginning of a life together with God. The story of all of the Bible, of all of creation, ends with God descending down to go back to the closeness that he had with humanity in the Garden of Eden, walking and talking with humanity and their creator, just like God intended from the beginning. God says, look, I am making all things new. And in the passages that we read today, we see some of the aspects of what this newness is going to contain. The first thing that it contains is there is a new heaven and a new earth. This is a fulfillment of the promise found in Isaiah 65, where it says, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. As you read through Revelation, you might have expected this story to end with us all kind of blasting off into the clouds to go eat Philly cream cheese with God forever. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what your picture of heaven is. But that's not the picture that we actually get of heaven. Earth is not something that is meant to be left behind or second rate. That's actually a thought that comes from Greek philosophy and Plato. But what we read in Revelation is that heaven is the primary space where God dwells and earth is where humanity primarily dwells. And at the end of the story, those two spaces, if it was a Venn diagram, become one. There is no part that is left out humanity's space on earth and God's space in heaven become one space together. God's dwelling and humanity's dwelling together forever under the rule and reign of God. I love how Eugene Peterson sums this up. He says, the biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The product of these beginning and ending acts of creation are the same. The heavens and the earth in Genesis and a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation. The story that has creation as its first word has creation as its last word. I love that. 
And as we get to the end of his story, we find a kainos heaven and earth, a new and redeemed and restored heaven and earth where everything that was destructive and damaging, everything that we experience on a day-to-day basis that is broken in our creation no longer has a place in this new heaven and this new earth. This is what is meant by the phrase, there is no more sea. N.T. Wright sums up this idea this way. Throughout this book, as in much of the Bible, The sea is a dark force of chaos which threatens God's plans and God's people. It is the element from which the monster first appeared. But in new creation, there will be no more sea, no more chaos, no more place from which monsters might again emerge. What what is being said here when there's no more sea, it's not saying that there won't be bodies of water in heaven and earth, in the new heaven and earth. We see that there's a river flowing right down the main street, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what it is saying is there's no more sea, meaning that there's no more chaos and danger and brokenness that we experience so often in this world today. And that is good news, is it not, friends? There's no more brokenness in this new heaven and in this new earth because there is no sea in it. And at the center of this new creation, this new heaven and new earth, where everything has been redeemed and restored, there is a city, a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Last week, we talked about how in Revelation 19, the people of God are described as the bride walking down the aisle towards their groom, Jesus. And we see that this is not just limited to humanity, but this is actually on a cosmic scale happening when heaven and earth come together. There is one great marriage and union that will last forever. And at the center of this place of, of union, this new Jerusalem, we find something that is surprising. There is no temple in this new city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem in in Israel's history was the place that centered around worship. The people of, of Israel came to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God because that's where God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a priest would go into that holy space and would go into the place where God's presence dwelt. But the people had this barrier between them and God because the space was so holy that if you went into it, you would die. And that happens a couple times in Israel's history. When we get to this new Jerusalem, though, there is no temple. John says, I saw no temple. And if you put yourselves in the, in the, the shoes of a, a first century Jew, this would have been mind-blowing. What do you mean there's no temple? What do you mean there's no place where we would go to connect with God? That is the place where we have always been close to God and connected with him. So why is there no temple? And the point is that this whole new city, this whole new Jerusalem is the temple of God. That is why the city is shaped like a cube. I know when I was reading those measurements, you were enthralled and you're like, go on. I want to know how tall the city is. I want to know how wide it is. I want to know all these things. Probably not. Unless you're a nerd, which if you are, awesome. Like me. Okay. But the point of that whole measurement is actually really, really important. The city is not just measured in how wide it is and how long it is. It's also measured in height. It is a cube. And in the Old Testament, the place that was a cube was the Holy of Holies with specific measurements for how big it was supposed to be. And the point of this whole measurement and this whole New Jerusalem is that everywhere is now the Holy of Holies. 
God's presence is not behind a curtain. God's presence is not separated. God's presence is everywhere for everyone in this new city. The whole city is filled with God's glory, which is why there's no need for a sun or a moon. There's no need for night and day because it's always going to be lit up by the glory of God. God's dwelling is now the whole city. Everywhere is the holy of holies. And this leads to another thing that's made new. There is new access to the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, one of the main characters of the Old Testament and of of the whole story of Scripture, says that he wants to see God. He wants to know God more, and he wants to see him face to face. In Exodus 33, Moses says, Please let me see your glory. And God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you can see my back, but my face will not be seen. In our passage that we read today, in Revelation 22, verse 4, we see that we get to see finally God face to face. What once was blocked off or cut off previously because we could not stand to be in the presence of God with our impurity and our unholiness, one day we will be able to be face to face with God. That prayer that Moses longed for in Exodus 33, show me your glory, we get to see that one day in Revelation 21 and 22 happens. And this passage shows us that as we draw near to God, as we get to see him face to face, there are some beautiful and amazing things that happen. Revelation 21 said this, then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but when you walked in here today, you had a picture of God that he was angry, that he was this this person who's constantly looking to smite you or to push you down. But friends, this is the picture of God I want you to walk out of here with today. When you become face-to-face with God, when you get closer to him, there will be no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. He will wipe every tear from your eyes because when we get face-to-face with God, that is the type of God he is. When we get into the presence of that kind of goodness, God is showing us that he wants so much more for us than we experience right here and right now often. He wants us to have life the way that he designed and intended with no more death, no more grief, no more pain. And when you enter into the presence of God and see him face to face, that is the result. I love that today. As we get closer to him, we experience more and more of what God designed and created us to be. And that's why life in the Christian worldview is life that is connected with God. That is one of the end goals of what we are designed and created to do. Have connection with God. Like it was in the Garden of Eden. And in this new Jerusalem, there is a new Garden of Eden as well. In chapter 22, we see that there is the tree of life from Genesis chapter 2. Although this tree of life looks a little bit different than it did in Genesis chapter 2. It's somehow on both sides of the river. I don't know 
how it's on both sides of the river or what that looks like, but there's now a river that's running straight through it. And this picture of a river running straight from the throne of God is actually from Ezekiel 47. It says this, Then he brought me back to the entrance of a temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of a temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of a temple, south of the altar. The point of these two pictures of the tree of life and of this river that is flowing from God's throne is that God is the source of all life. We can search for life in a whole host of other places, but if we try to live a life devoid of the source of life, the one who is breathed into our lungs, we are missing what we are created and designed for. This river of life flows straight from God, and as we read in the passage, he wants to freely give it to you and to I today. In this new Jerusalem, we find a tree of life, a river flowing from God, and the new garden shows us that one day we will experience life and life the way that God fully intends for us to experience it. God sits on his throne and he says, look, I am making all things new. There is a new heaven and earth, a new Jerusalem, a new way to experience my presence and a new garden of Eden. Everything that was decreated by humanity, God has recreated and restored and redeemed. That is how our story ends. All that was lost is found. That's a pretty good story, isn't it? And as we listen today, you might be wondering, well, that's great and all, but how does that help me on September 4th, 2022? That's one day in the future, but what about right here, right now? Well, Dallas Willard tells us why seeing this matters. He says, the human mind must have a picture of the future. Thomas Merton puts it this way, a man's life is shaped by the ends that he lives for. What these two men are trying to get at is that our picture of the future matters right here and right now because we are living towards what we believe the future to be. Here's what Daryl Johnson adds to that idea. We automatically live out in the present what we think the future holds. The decisions we make, especially regarding our use of time and money, are determined by our sense of the future. The quality of our present is shaped by our experience of the past and by our understanding of the future, which says to me that I want to get the future as straight as I can. If we see clearly what the future holds, we can start to live towards that right here and right now. This new heaven and this new earth and this new Jerusalem and all these things that we've been talking about where God is going to make them new are not just great things for the future. They actually inform and shape how we live right here and right now. Our goal for you and I as followers of Jesus is to live with this end in sight. This is why we need to get as clear on the future as we possibly can. This is why we need to recover the practice of thinking about heaven and meditating on it. When we meditate on the fact and and think about the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, it reminds us that one day all of creation will be in harmony with its creator. There won't be any more earthquakes or death or famine or disease or those things that are around us right now that are so horrific all the time. When we remember that all things are being made new, it can remind us that suffering and death and pain are temporary and that one day when we are in the presence of God fully, all sickness, all disease, all death and decay are gone forever. When we remember that there's a new Eden, we will remember that our deepest longings and desires will one day be fulfilled when we are in the presence of God. All of the best parts of our life right here and right now are but an appetizer of the goodness that is to come. 
and the worst parts of life that we are in touch with so often will show us that they are longings for us to be made whole, that we will experience being fulfilled one day. I love the way Randy Alcorn sums all this up. He says, I've never been to heaven, yet I miss it. Eden's in my blood. The best things of life are souvenirs from Eden and appetizers of the new earth. Eden is in our blood, friends. We were created and made and designed to walk and talk and be in relationship with God. And when we live with that end in sight, we get to join with God right here, right now, not someday in the future, in bringing that wherever we go because God's spirit lives within each one of us. We bring his rule and his reign with us wherever we go today. So in those dark pockets that you come up against, you are called to be light and to bring life and newness to those places. Jesus is coming soon, friends. And until that day when we see him face to face, I invite you to join me in praying what the Bible ends with. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me today as we've finished? Father, I thank you that you have written and created such an incredible story and that we don't have to fear because we know how this story ends. And so God, in this present day, help our minds and our imaginations to be steeped in this idea of a new creation, a new heaven that has been redeemed and restored, that all what, that is broken around us will one day be no more. And help us to be men and women, boys and girls, people who bring that new creation attitude with us everywhere that we go, bringing your goodness, your hope, your love with us wherever we go. Would you give us purpose and mission to see that, God, you are in the business of making all things new, not just you will one day do it. The, the text says you are making all things new. And so help us, Lord, to join with you in that purpose. Help us to see the people that you've placed in our past who are experiencing sickness and pain around us and help us to speak words of hope and truth to them, to encourage them, to love them, Lord. God, would you give us eyes to see how we can join with your work in making all things new as we leave this place today and as we head into a new season before us. We love you, Lord, so much because you have loved us first. In your name we pray all these things, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, church, for being here with us today. We love you. Uh, if you're brand new to faith or you want to find out more about what following Jesus is all about, we encourage you to text the word LIFE to 250-478-7113. Uh, as one of our pastors, would love to journey with you. Uh, if you're brand new today, I encourage you to head on over to the Welcome Center where Pastor Josh would love to meet you as he's heading there right now. And uh, if you want to sign up for the Global Leadership Summit, you can do that on your way out this morning as well. Well, love you, church. Have an amazing rest of your week.